Accuracy is proud to be a supporter of ASIAL's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Security. Security workforce management software reimagined. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are talking to Dr. Philip Boss. Uh, Dr. Boss has a long and extensive background in physical security, as well as a number of degrees in mathematics and uh, other areas, including some experience in cybersecurity. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. So perhaps you can begin by telling us a little bit about your background before we get into today's subject, which is the the recent Optus data breach and I suppose cybersecurity in general. Certainly, John. Uh, initially, I started off in the field of counterterrorism. Um, I then worked for uh, two large corporations, Westfield and News Corp, and the various families behind those. Um, I had very discerning customers who had a demanding level of expertise, which helped me bring together very good teams and uh, accumulate a lot of knowledge over that 40 years. And uh, whilst working for News Corp, I um, had to protect the journalists' identities, and I became very conscious of privacy and identity theft and those sorts of things about which we're going to talk today. So obviously the Optus data breach, uh, which happened around sort of this time last week for people who are listening to this probably a little over two weeks ago, is one of those things that I guess alludes to a bigger problem that we have here in Australia where we are a little bit lax in one area, uh, which is we're a little lax around cybersecurity and and some of how we protect these things, even though there's a fair few regulations in place. But there's also um, another element to it, which is the amount of information that a lot of organisations seem to be hoovering up at the moment. And a lot of it is unnecessary or it would seem to be unnecessary information, which if divulged, as was the case in the Optus data breach, where we seem to have had names, dates of birth and in particular, a document number, whether it be a driver's license or a passport or whatever it may be, that is enough with some reasonable social engineering to uh, allow someone to try and create an identity. So let's talk a little bit about the social engineering piece, because I believe you've had some experience with this. Well, I have. Um, As I mentioned, uh, with News Corp, where we found that all the public details of journalists were available in open source whether it be electorals or white pages or places of that nature, um, quite apart from hacking, uh, just doing things through the old-fashioned open source collection. Um, the, also, the system is vexed in that that system which enables um, identification, your name, address, of date of birth, is precisely the system which is what hackers need to create your identity. And so the difficulty is um, once they're stored and lost, you can never get them back. And so it's very, very hard to return your identity to you once it's taken, and it's not that difficult to get it. If I could share with your readers one social engineering example where a friend of mine, um, we'll use his first name, Michael, um, came to me with his identity missing. Uh, People were contacting him and saying his Medicare card wasn't delivered, his ATO records weren't filed, his postal uh, box had been redirected, it was empty of mail. And thought as he might, checking, hacking at all the highly technical um, opportunities to take his data, he found that he'd been had a fender bender with a motorcycle with the exchange database particulars on your license. And from that name, address, and date of birth, and driver's license number, they were able to become Michael by simply ringing a few banks, a few insurance companies, 
few telcos, and with so many myriad systems and no one size fits all with identification, they find a few cracks and suddenly they're Michael and borrowing money in his name, taking it out. And he has found 14 months of work um, impossible to get his identity back. So as they say, an ounce of prevention is, is um, hugely worth more than the cure. And um, so that's one example uh, where they was missing with an accident. You have to exchange your particulars under law. You're vulnerable immediately. Yeah. And do you find that organisations these days are collecting a lot of information that they don't necessarily need or, more importantly, then don't need to keep beyond the initial process of identifying who you are? Well, I'm about to smile because that's the key process of BlueKey. We don't want to keep data. Um, it's always an ongoing battle. More firewalls, more cybersecurity, more techniques to keep that data protected. And the more valuable and the more you wish to protect it, the more other people want it. So we ask, why isn't the system data free? Why don't you take that data and convert it into an identity and then lose that data? So, you know, the data merchants and those who keep the data are always going to be vulnerable. And Joe Citizen is not going to be well protected because someone will get that data, as we've seen recently and many times and perhaps in the future. So Blue Key's view and our view to government and business and consumer is that the data should not be part of the identity. It can be used to construct it, but then you're given a key or a number or an app or a card, and that is your identity coming from your biometrics and your government documents, but they're not part. We don't store them. They're not to be seen. So avoid hacking by not storing so how does that work, though? Because a lot of organisations that we're talking to and seeing these days, um, let's say a bank or a telco or whoever it may be, when the operator is talking to you on the phone and they're trying to identify you, they obviously have a list of details in front of them. And it might be your name, your date of birth, your address, your driver's licence number, whatever it may be. If they don't have those details sitting there in front of them, how do they confirm that John Bigelow is actually John Bigelow? So John Bigelow um, enrolls, let's say, in the Blue Key system. We we scan your face, we do a proof of liveness, and we correlate that to a government document. Very nice. So far, pretty standard. Then we give you a Blue Key, a mathematical algorithm that can't be deconstructed or reverse engineered into your address, your, your face, your fingerprints. And we then let go of all that data. It's lost in volatile memory. We don't need your address. We've used that to produce the Blue Key. We no longer need your face. We no longer need a copy of your driver's license. We're not trying to sell you anything. So then you have this Blue Key app. Perhaps an insurance company or the bank have the app as well. They ring you up. Hi, John. I notice you're a Blue Key user. We're a Blue Key provider. Let's do an exchange. Send you a token. You accept it. You know it's the insurance company. They know it's you. And you exchange details in, in complete privacy and, and comfort. Otherwise, the experience is now horrible. An unlisted number calls you asks you all kinds of private data and, and says that's what they need to do to identify you and it's just not a good experience for both sides of the coin. So the identity process at the moment is not only um, dangerous because it can be taken so easily, but it's also just a little broken because it's very old-fashioned, very slow and relies on people at the end of the phone having trust to start with and they're trying to get trust so they can ask you who it is to get your trust. It's a little circular. So Blue Key is a system which is accredited and respected and serves to identify you uniquely because it's made up of your biometrics. It's what we call self-sovereign. It's yours, it's you, it's who you are. It's not given to you um, as a document or a card or a piece of paper or, 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 or an address, something that you don't wish to disclose. So 
Um, it's a very simple system. It's not complicated. And what we've tried to do, and I think um, your listeners might agree, is it's a complicated system. Identity and, and logging on and proving who you are and having six identities and a driver's license and a passport and a university card and every other system means you're, the, you're subject to the vagaries of 50 different creators of identity systems in Australia. We believe one size fits all that's simple and doesn't keep data is the answer for Australians. Yeah. And it becomes challenging too because I know a lot of people in an effort to try and streamline what they're doing have recently started using some of these passport or password um, and identity management programs where you basically put all of your passwords or it captures all of your passwords for all of the various sites and all the rest of it. And that's great. But there was a fairly large one only a number of, uh, say, maybe weeks or a month or two ago where they discovered that some of their proprietary coding information had been leaked by an employee, which then put at risk their database, which then means that all of my passwords are now at risk of being exposed. So again, are there, you know, are there ways around this kind of challenge that doesn't involve the storage of multiple different passwords and credentials and all the rest of it? Passwords are recognised by the industry as a nightmare. If you follow the instructions of every organisation to change your password regularly, I've got 72 pages of passwords. It's close type 26 lines a page. Um, I can't possibly remember them all. I can use very complicated generated ones by the latest systems. But passwords are, again, a, a system based on memory, storage, writing them down, keeping them somewhere. Why not generate something from your body, from your blue key, from your face that's intrinsic to you that can't be reproduced? Why can't that be your password? And so blue key is looking at, in further generations, that password generation would come from, from who you are, um, not what you have to remember, write down or operate, um, which is extremely complicated. So... The internet has become very complicated and users have to become more and more adept. We're trying to turn the clock back so it's very simple and it's almost like a, a village pass. Oh, that's Phil. He's got the blue key. We'll let you in and do what you need to do because you are who you say you are. No one else can say that, make that claim because of the blue key. So we believe that this is a system which, it, of course, people have to store data, but perhaps you store data on your phone yourself and you transmit that when you need to. Perhaps you know they're storing the data what for. There's no need to store data to identify you. So that furphy's got to be got rid of. Company wants to store data on me to give me useful information. I accept that. But I don't need to be told we're keeping this so we can identify you. So as a software company, you need to know my address, which I download online. No, thank you. Yeah. So then why are they keeping this data? Is it more so that is it for marketing purposes rather than security purposes? Or or am I just asking you to speculate there? <laughs> I speculate on this every minute of every day. Um, yeah. That's the business I mean, but I would like to speculate. I don't I don't cast a, a, a one-size-fits-all at all organisations. The system is complicated and broken and old-fashioned, so they have to. I'll give you one tiny example. I went to a company the other day. I purchased something. They wanted to see who I was. They sent me seven cents on my credit card. So my credit card company closed it down as suspicious behaviour. Everybody's inventing a system to identify you, and they're doing their very best, some of them. Some of them are boldly using your data without telling you for you know marketing purposes i'm sure we can find out who those people are but many people have no other choice because this hasn't been thought about for a long time we're still using 1950s identification systems and it, here's the here's the litmus test for you john ask yourself if you lost your blue key or your credit card for example can it be flushed and replaced straight away no problem any identification system that 
uses your name, address, and date of birth, ask if you feel like flushing your name, your date of birth, and your address. Like, no, thank you, you can't. So if an identification system needs those things to support the, the, the verification of who you are, it's broken before it starts. Yeah. So let's come back to the social engineering piece for a minute, because I think this is an important part of what's going on and what's happened recently with Optus, where, you know, the information that we're talking about is name, date of birth, uh, and an identifying document. And that a, a single identifying document might be, say, you know, 40 points of identification or even 60 points of identification. And we have a system in which we need to usually present 100 points. But with a lot of these online systems now, uh, whether it be, you know, buy now, pay later systems or other various forms of retail credit and whatnot, you're able to sign up online with very, very little information beyond name, date of birth, address, and say driver's license. So how much information do these organizations actually need to get hold of all these criminal organizations actually need to get hold of to start racking up debt in someone else's name well it goes back to an earlier point if business needs 12 documents to do business with you you don't want to do business with them and they don't want to do business with you it's expensive and complicated so the more you put the onus on a business to come up with all the identifiers 100 points 120 points not those four things you mentioned Maybe let's add four more. So there's eight things you have to do to buy software or or, or, or gamble online or, or, or order alcohol online or, for example, um, or shop online. So it has to get simpler, not more complicated. However, at the moment, the currency for hackers is the four things you described, uh, the name, address, and date of birth, and one identifying document. Now, it's a numbers game. You steal 10 million records. You put them on the dark web. You have a gang calling 100 agencies a month 10 people doing it, there'll be vagaries in the processes that's in all those organizations that you will eventually get through and be able to order, purchase, get more documents, get a copy of this, change the post office box, get a new phone, reset the two-factor authentication, and in some cases, still millions. Now, they only need to get 10 out of 100, 10 out of 1,000, um, and still 10, 15,000, 100,000 per person. So 10 million records translates to a lot of money, even if it's successful at the 1% level. So that's because it's complicated and everybody does it a little differently. We all worked to the same sheet of music and we all worked on biometrics and we all didn't store data to identify each other. Um, fraud would go away. And we've seen with our, um, our technology providers that where we present this to um, people committing fraud, two things, fraud stops. And you wonder what sort of a criminal wants to show his face to undergo biometric identification to then commit, con, you know, conduct fraud. Not too many, I would imagine. So yeah. um, it's a real hacker stopper. Okay. For small to medium-sized businesses who can't necessarily go out and spend a huge amount of money on, you know, cybersecurity professionals and outsourced teams and all the rest of it, I mean, where does this process begin for them? What sorts of data should they be storing? Because I think the problem is we've got a lot of organisations that are storing huge amounts of data that they don't necessarily need, but they don't know what else to do with it. Yeah, good question. So I think um, it goes to another business principle. Um, in in my career, I've taught crisis management and recovery, business recovery, and so forth. So you have to scenario what your business is going to look like if you lose the data. And if you can't stand up in front of Australia or other parts of the world and say, uh, we lost it and the consequences of us losing it are 
acceptable, then perhaps you might not wish to store it. You have to um, go onto the uh, paradigm that you might well lose the data. So you've got to ask yourself if you store it for convenience, if you store it fully disclosed, if you store it with, with the people who you're storing it for, accepting it. Now, if people know you're storing it and they want tailored advertising, they want to have good service, they want to be recognized at the restaurant and at the bank and all these places, that's fine. My concern is when people store it, don't tell you, and they store it because maybe they're putting up a new antenna in the area or a new service is starting or, or, and they want to have that for other reasons than the original principle why you supplied it. So I have no objection to storing data if it's fully disclosed both ways. What we're saying is data doesn't need to be stored for identification anymore. Um, yeah. So you have to make a question. If you if you had a crisis, could you stand up in front of Australia and say, well, this is why we store the data and you said we could, and so this is a joint problem that we created ourselves, or no, we just imposed this mess on you because we forgot to tell you. Yeah, and I suppose the one that gets me to is I can't point to specific examples of this without naming companies, but let's say you've decided you want to apply for finance, whether it be on a house or it be on a new car or even a piece of you know machinery or equipment, and you go through a finance company or a broker and they ask for pay slips and employer information and identification documents and passports and all the rest of it. So you email all of that information to them, which is now sitting, I imagine, in many cases on an unprotected email server within that organization, maybe for the next five to 10 years, because do they go back and delete all of those emails once they've finalized the application? I think we know the answer to that. Um, I think the task of doing that is impossible. There's billions of emails generated every hour, and to go back and re remove them for privacy and catalog and file them, that sounds like an expensive, um, error-prone system. I think what we need to keep saying is, why do you have it to do identification? Um, why do you store it? Do you need to do identification? Now, if you store it for other reasons so that I know what time the swimming training starts, I don't mind if someone steals the swimming training um, information. That's not my identification. But if they can steal my name, address, date of birth from your servers and one of my documents, then they're me currently in Australia. They become me. So data storage itself is not horrible. Business needs data. Data storage for identification without disclosure is A, not right, and B, unnecessary, completely unnecessary nowadays. By the way, John, if I might just quickly say, it's not just data storage and stopping the process. It's also that the process have to be done twice. You log on to a hotel website, you give them your details, your credit card, you have your room number, you arrive on a busy flight, for example, to go to the ASIO show recently um, at Darling Harbour. And when you arrive, it's checkout time and you've got to fill in the form, identify yourself and go through it again, even though you've already paid for the room and you know your room number. If you blue key identified yourself, they'd know who you were and you'd be connected immediately to the transaction. So we're not just trying to go back to the um, stone age and say, no data, don't store. We're saying once we've given you the data, we expect not to have to give it to you again as well. That's also cumbersome and 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 speaks to the system not not having checks and balances. So we we wish to make it very. Uh, I used you used these words the other day, Occam's razor, um, very simple, and also one time. Why do everything twice? It's just frustrating. So simplicity and the least amount of information stored can produce identity. I'm not objecting to storing data. I'm objecting to store it to construct identity. Yeah. So what sorts of information 
would be leaked that is enough to start triggering alarm bells for people? I know we've mentioned it a few times throughout the podcast, but we've said name, address, date of birth. Are those three things alone enough if that's what's leaked from an organization or does it, does there need to be a fourth element to it? Well, many organizations ask for a document, but as you said before, most of this is online. So in the case of my colleague and friend, Michael, he exchanged those particulars and you're obliged to by law. So if you don't do any major damage, you do a fender bender, they drive what's called a Q license, which is an overseas license here for three months can't be ever found again, that person, um, you then have all four by law. And so then you can reconstruct your identity. Now, I know there's two-factor authentication. I know there's passwords to banks. But if you are sufficiently um, have a sufficient number of records and say, I dropped my phone, I lost this, I had a robbery, I haven't got those records anymore, my computer crashed, name, address, date of birth in the main, and one identity document, the driver's license, is enough to reset who you are. And by the way, um, you might just say, well, there must be a system where you just reset your ID, get a new one and tell everyone a story. It's very, very difficult. We're behind in policing, we're behind in legislation, we're behind in understanding. My, uh, my friend and colleague went to the police about the issue. The first question is, where under the Crimes Act is this? Has there been theft? Have you lost money yet? Um, and it's very difficult for them to know how to react. So uh, police responses need to be also brought up to scratch. identity theft yeah and that seems to be part of the challenge too when it comes to the social engineering piece a lot of people still don't yet realize that if you get a phone call saying you know hi philip yeah we just need to confirm your address we have it as blah 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 is that your current address yes it is we have your date of birth as the first of the fourth, can you just tell us the last two digits so that we know we can confirm the year? You go, yes, it's, uh, you know, 1968 or whatever it may be. And then they say, uh, and can you also please just confirm for me your driver's license number, which might be the piece that's missing. So this seems to me needs to be the part that everyone's got to be thinking about a little bit more carefully as the social engineering side of what goes on here and how easy it is for a lot of organizations to gather information. And I mean, nefarious organizations to gather information on you that they don't necessarily already have. So I think you'd be a good social engineering hacker. John, because you were very believable and you you might say people should be suspicious. I don't think people are intrinsically suspicious. I think generally we we want to trust people. We're a gregarious animal. We we like to believe the person on the other end of the phone might be the real deal, not always. And so if somebody knows some parts and tells you a story, I, I hear most people give the information away. Most people don't object to the unlisted number. Plenty do, but not most because you've been trained to trust them for 20, 30, 40 years of reputable organizations calling you before there was hacking theft, before there was internet, before there was a digital age, and conditioning you to say yes to those things. And they were your diners club or your restaurant or your bank or the the real estate agent or the the school or the university. Stalwart organizations who for years used a system that wasn't broken. And so, of course, most Australians trust that system. And now they're being punished for it because that's the system now which hackers bold-faced take advantage of and and steal your identity. So I don't blame Australians for not being suspicious. It's hard to be suspicious. We have to change the system so they don't have to be on guard. So there's just not so many holes in it. It's not fair to ask Australians to guard their identity at every tick of the clock. That's a horrible existence. Yeah. Although it seems at this stage we still unfortunately do need to do so. So if we were to sort of 
to to bring this in and sort of land the podcast, if you were to give your top five tips for not becoming a victim of some of these sorts of crimes, what would they be? Well, public demand record suppression is an important view in my um, from my way of thinking. Why do you have to give information is the first question you should ask. Why do you have to be on the electoral roll? Why do you have to be in the white pages? Why do you, don't you have a post office box? Why do you give your address away as an identifier? Why not use your passport? It doesn't have your address in it. Why not use a document that doesn't give that away? Is the address the key thing? Well, it is if someone comes to your house, you don't want them to. Um, and there are documents that give 100 points ID or close to it without the address, for example, a passport. As you say, it's suspicious. There's phishing scams, Trojan horse scams. It goes on forever. Just remember, only three things need to go missing from you. They probably know your name. Um, your date of birth, and ask why they. Why do you have to do that? I've many times asked companies, why do you need my address? I'm downloading software. And so you have to be a little bit vigilant that way until the system changes because if you just give it away, it's going to possibly end up on the dark web as, you know, if, if millions of Australians have just lost information and um, perhaps uh, 15 or 17 million people are over the age of... Um, 15 or 18, then that means that maybe three quarters of commercial operating Australia has just lost their identity in some part. So I think that means that you have to be vigilant until government, commerce and users come together with a system, as I've explained, that doesn't use those non-perishable permanent details about you to say who you are. So let's change the system so everyone can stop um, wandering around being so suspicious and nervous all the time. Fantastic. Well, look, Phil, thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat to us today. It's been uh, enlightening. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to hear more podcasts like this one, there are plenty in the ASIAL series. You can find them on the ASIAL website at www.asial.com.au. Under the news section, you'll find podcasts. There's uh, getting close to 100 of them there now. You can also find them on iTunes, Blurberry, Spotify, Google Play, Android, and all the other great places where you find podcasts. And we look forward to speaking to you next time. Security is proud to be a supporter of ASIAL's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Security. Security Workforce Management Software Reimagined.